0: Well, good morning, family. That just seems brighter than normal, I don't know. It's, uh, it is a good day today. It's a good day to open God's word and learn a little bit more about Jesus. How about that? That's what we've been doing, as we've been looking at through the book of John, studying on Jesus. Who he is. And uh, of course, that's a lifetime pursuit for a Christian. We're, we're our whole life is discovering God and the, the God who is, uh, is beyond full discovery, certainly by us, right? He will reveal himself someday. So today I want to, we're in chapter two, and verse number one, starting off. In a very familiar story. And, uh, and I want to I first just go through it. Um, and uh, then we're going to pick some things as the Lord, uh, I, I think, will be helpful in understanding this story. Um, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us as we open your word this morning. Lord, there are people in this room and watching online who today need exactly what this portion of scripture what you have revealed has to say to us i pray that lord we will receive all of it in jesus name amen it says on the third day there was a wedding in cana of galilee now jesus has already been baptized at by this point and he is um he went into the wilderness fasted confronted the devil came back um John the Baptist had identified him as the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and uh, told some of his followers that was the case and a couple of them decided they're going to follow Jesus. And we started that process as Jesus is now starting to reveal himself to those who would be his disciples. At another point down the road, he will call them directly, but now there is a, there is a process now of his disciples coming to him. And, uh, and his ministry is now beginning. And this today, we're looking at the very first miracle that Jesus did. Now, there are some false teaching and some false gospels or, t- or um, writings that give the impression that Jesus was doing miracles his whole life. As he was a little boy, you know, he would he would uh, transform things and make butterflies and whatever, but um, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that this was the beginning of miracles, the beginning of signs, and the start of his his ministry as he's, um, starting to allow more to re- to receive or to re- to reveal himself to more people who he really is. So there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, this small town Cana, and um, and the mother of Jesus was there. It's uh, in fact Cana is still there, and uh, we go on our our, our trips to Israel. And we'll stop at the place that's believed to be where the wedding happened, that there, there, there was a synagogue there and that possibly that was the place where the, the, the wedding happened. And of course, some things you know for sure. This one you don't know absolutely for sure. But you know it's in that area, that Jesus um, goes to this wedding and, uh, and his mother is uh, involved in the wedding. And she's helping out. And it says now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So they're they're there, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." Now, they well okay, get something else. You know, maybe some iced tea or something. Let's fill you know fill in the gap. But um, this was a big deal. Um, the 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 process. The marriage process was an engagement process, a betrothal that was almost like being married, except for the final, you know, consummation of the marriage. And there was a year, years time, approximately, in which the groom's responsibility was to get things ready for the wedding, and to get things ready for their marriage and the house or the place where they would live, which usually was an addition to his mom and dad's house. And they would, do an, they would add on, and uh, it would be his father's house. He would add on to it, and that would be the place where they would stay. Um, you could see this connection when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So the place that that God was bringing it's bringing us to is an addition to the Father's house, you see, and uh, and this is a preparation for the wedding that will come. And there's a r- lot of um, there's a lot of connection in this story to what actually Jesus was about when he was here, and what he was doing, and what the Father was doing throughout the throughout history. In fact, history, all of history can be kind of capsulized in this one thing. The father is preparing or finding or getting a bride for his son. And it starts with a, a story of a of a of a husband and wife and it ends with the bride, you know, the saying, come, you see, the bride is is the body of Christ, the church it's so one's call to be with Christ, and so we see this in the story that Jesus now sees this groom in big trouble because it's incredible embarrassment that he would not have prepared enough in all that time frame for the wedding that they were going to have, and the people not having what it would what they needed. Um, and uh, as far as wine, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a minute. But it says, "In Jesus, um, and the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine.'" In other words, he's saying she's saying to him, "Could you fix this?" But you know, why tell me? You know, Jesus could have said that. You know, why tell me? What are you bothering me with this? And and he said to her, "Woman." What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, it seems kind of harsh the way he responds. I know if I told my mother, woman called her woman, I'd get more than a handful that I deserved. And and uh, she, so but she's she's calling him, and his response is an interesting one because he's now made this shift. Okay in his life up until this point, he's a carpenter he's taking care of his mother, and now, at this point, he is shifting into his role. he's always been about his father's business. remember at twelve years old he 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 made that statement, but now he's shifting in his role as as messiah and the things that he's going to minister um, you know to uh, to the world and and so he He makes his statement, but then he goes in and do it does it anyhow, so you know mom don't bother me okay i'll do it and but the, I, the, I don't think it was I think he was giving her um kind of th- this is how we're we're operating now, and the co- and the statement woman which, which would be obviously that would seem kind of a disrespectful thing but that was the, also the thing that Jesus said in the most heartwarming way when he was on the cross and he said he said to Mary you know woman behold your son he's, he's referring to John who is now going to be her, her caretaker and the one that would care for her and, and of love he was responding there. So I don't think it's really different here, but I do think he is definitely sending a message to mom. Okay, mom, now on, I'm in this other place, and I've got got to finish. I've I've come to do my, my father's business, and by the way, it's not time yet for what? Well, there's going to be a time, and Jesus would use that phrase often. When he would say it's not time yet, he was referring to the time he would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, and so how he operated in all this thing had a time um, period in which it would it would it you know there would be the end of the the um, you know his life on earth, and he would pay the price for the sins of the world, and everything had to come together at that specific time. We, and we looked at it, so we looked at it that when Jesus died. There was a specific moment directed by God the Father for Jesus to actually die on the cross, and it worked out just right. You know, he died on Passover. But um, so <clears throat> his mother said to the servants, this is something we all ought to listen to. Whatever he says to you, do it. Could you just maybe turn to your neighbor and say that? Whatever he says to you, do it. That's the best advice you'll ever get. You'll, you'll never get better advice than that. Whatever he says to you, do it. That's what... The, 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 that, that's the kind of advice... Listen, um, I wish I would have always done I wish in my life, as I look back, I would have always done what Jesus asked me to do. And um, I'm grateful for the grace that has helped me to do what he has helped me to do. But it goes on and says And there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. You do the math. We're talking a lot of wine. I mean, this is more than that, uh, all the people at that wedding, which probably wasn't as large as, very large, because it was a small community. See, this wedding would have been known in the community because it was a small community. Everybody knew each other, and they knew what was going on. And uh, they... They would have been there expecting that there's going to be the celebration for seven days. And they would re, you know, be rejoicing and en- enjoying the, the, the time, the eating and the drinking and all of that. And, uh, and now Jesus makes an extraordinary amount of wine. There's more wine that's need- than absolutely needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. More wine than needed, and uh, so here's the question: Was Jesus trying to get everybody drunk? And you laugh at that, but um, actually, I there are those who actually think that was happening, and uh, and I want to we're going to address this in a minute, but um, but what what we do see positively in this is that there is um, that Jesus. Jesus has no problem giving us more than we need. And can I say that again? Jesus has no problem giving us more than we need. Sometimes, you know, the, the, the Bible does say, you know, having food and clothing and so forth, there with there be content. But Jesus isn't always content with just giving us enough to, for us to survive. He loves to give in abundance. And, uh, and this is just kind of an example of the, uh, of, of the way in which God is very generous in giving to us and blessing us in our life. And he loves to give us even more. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So I can ask and think a lot, for a lot. I, I, my imagination can go pretty big and yet the bible says it he's given he's going to give you more than that i mean either in this world or the world to come he is a generous god and he will give you exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask your thing so there are these water pots or stones according to the manner of purification. And this was this, these, these would normally be filled with water so that they could, they could do the washings and the purifying before they would eat and, uh, and the ceremonies that would be, take place for the wedding as well. So um, these water jugs, um, Jesus said, fill the water pot, pots to, with water and fill them up to the brim. I didn't need to, but I want them to the top. I want them filled all the way to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and uh, I left this in the text, even though it's not in the New King James. Oinos, that's the, the Greek word that this is what this word for wine is, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, and the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So if I'm doing my first miracle, it's going to be big. You know I mean? If, if, if I'm doing it... I'm going to make sure that, you know, everybody knows. This is my first miracle. And, uh, and we're going to get started on this road. So today, you know, it's probably going to be a raise somebody from the dead, you know, and uh, my name and lights in the skies. And I mean, it's, it's going to be huge. And everybody's going to see this. This is going to be cosmic and nobody knows but his disciples that even did it the bridegroom doesn't know the the people at the wedding they don't know because Jesus doesn't always do things so that he looks good sometimes Jesus just does stuff because he cares I love to give God glory. In fact, oftentimes when I'm praying and I really need a breakthrough, I need I need a miracle. I'll make these statements: God, Jesus, I'll give you all the glory. And that's kind of like to, you know I'm trying to I'm trying to you know persuade Him if I could uh, if, you know you're going to get a, you're going to get a lot of glory for this one Lord, know. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and though He deserves it. I don't think it's the reason he does everything he does. I, I think Jesus does stuff because he cares. And he cares about you. He cares what you're going through. He cares about the, the, the difficulty, the suffering. I think the fact that he just did this to save It's not the only reason, but one of the main reasons Jesus did this was to save a groom from some humiliation. It's kind of like, well, you know, he'll get over his humiliation. I mean, it's it's not, you know, it's not comfortable. You know, he's going to have to kind of regret that. And everybody in town knew that he didn't really do everything he should have done to make sure the wedding was, you know, had everything it needed. But he'd get over it. And Jesus said, "I'm going to intervene here, and I'm going to bail this guy out. Why? Because it's just Jesus. That's why. It's just Jesus. I, I am. Um, I think we see Jesus too often like he's a businessman. You know, he's kind of." He, he, he has things he has to accomplish, and so it's about the business. He has his day planner, you know, and he's going to accomplish cer- certain things, and, and those things have to do with his overall big plan, and everything is kind of worked out overall for the purpose of, you know, ultimately bringing him glory and finishing off the things that the Father wants in the kingdom. And and yet, you see Jesus in these actions of just pure kindness because he is and it's what he taught us he taught us that we come into situations when we're not going to get any benefits from it ourselves but you know that's what love is it's being kind when you don't get anything in return and so He tells them to fill it up. They draw it out. And the master of the, fee- of the feast, which is the, this is the, the wedding planner. This is his best man. This is the guy who's responsible, making sure everything works out well. He's the one that, um, that recognizes the, what, the wine is different. It's not just the wine that they normally had. This wine is better than what they've had. Because Jesus makes everything better. And so he doesn't give them just the same thing. He's doing something to make it better. I'm always looking for Jesus to turn things that are bad into good. Because isn't that the promise? That Paul said all things work together for good to those that love God are called according to his purpose. So we can anticipate when something is going on in our life, there's something better coming. There's something good down the road. All things work together for good. Now ultimately, we might not see all of it, but we can know for a fact that this is what God is going to do. And so it's going to be good. So for this groom, running out of wine was a good thing. Because now his, uh, all of his guests are getting better wine. And they're wondering, why are you giving us such good wine when normally people give their worst, cheap, the cheapest wine at the end because when people have kind of drunk, they don't, their taste buds aren't working as good. And it doesn't matter so much. But now Jesus is now giving us, he gives us the best. Now this beginning of signs, this beginning of miracles, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory. His disciples believed in him. So his disciples were the ones who saw. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So that's the story. And it's a wonderful story of God's love and Jesus in in action and his concern for a groom. In fact, I titled this, The Groom Who, Who Rescues the Groom. Because Jesus is the groom. And he, and it's a reminder of him. And there's good reason for why he did his first miracle at a wedding. I, I, I believe that he at that point was sanctioning weddings, that he was sanctioning marriage, that Jesus was saying marriage is a valuable thing. He showed up to the wedding. And marriage is a valuable thing and and we and God's word is so helpful in walking and living out our lives in that relationship that God, you know, would, would uh, avail us. But Jesus honored that. But at the same, same time, there's something going on with this wine. And uh, Jesus had talked about wine too, and we'll get to that in a minute. When he talked about the fact that there would be, you know, there are, there, there, there are, there's wine that's in a container, and when the new wine Comes You don't put new wine in old containers unless it stretches it out and it bursts and, uh, and you lose what you have. And Jesus was talking about the fact that he was bringing the new wine. And the new wine would be the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's the new covenant. And that at that time he was talking about why you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because, well, there was a whole bunch of people who were not accepting the new wine that Jesus was bringing. And they were rejecting it. And that's the, the context of that. But, but this story brings out something that is talked about um, often. Here's a question. Is Jesus sanctioning drinking wine? Because I've heard this, this. This is a response I've heard over and over again, when someone has said, well, you know, the Bible really says a lot of negative things about drinking, alcohol, drinking wine, a lot of negative things. And so the answer is, well, Jesus turned water into wine. So, you know, it really doesn't matter are these other texts that talk negatively about drinking, because Jesus, he turned water into wine. We are, in, in an overall picture, something has changed in the church in America in regard to this. You know, um, the, the 18th Amendment, anybody know what that is? It, it it's no longer has its power. <laughs> the 18th Amendment forbid um, selling alcohol in the United States. It's an interesting process if you do any kind of study of this. Um, kind of, it's always kind of uh, brought up as, well, it's kind of like, you know, the, the church lady on Saturday Night Live? You know, it's kind of like the church lady of Saturday Night Live, there was a bunch of them, they got together and forced this, you know, this amendment to the Constitution to get rid of alcohol. And, 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 and it wasn't that at all. Actually, it was a theology that was in the church by some of the greatest theologians of our time at that time. And you have people like Spurgeon and, and others who really were behind um, the theological background for um, you know, pressing the, the abstinence of alcohol in the church and beyond in the community they saw the negative you know uh, things that happen as a result of alcohol and they looked at the scriptures and their conclusion was that alcohol should not be drunk in fact we had strong movements like for instance the the largest what protestant movement in in the in the united states uh, baptists the southern baptists um, were abstinent of and you have other movements to even up to modern times like Calvary Chapel and so forth, who originally really spoke um, and and taught for people to be absent. That this was this was the norm. Not not in a legalistic way, but certainly in a you know, this is what we see the pattern of scripture, and this is the best way to operate in your faith and walking with God. And uh but there's this Issue, and I want to just talk with you a little bit about this thing because when you're looking at it, they have been drinking for how whatever long enough to get rid of all the alcohol, or, you know, or or I should say all the wine, right? At the time, and then Jesus comes along and makes about 150 gallons of wine and says, "Have at it," and it's the best wine. And some say, "Well, the best wine, of course, is the age... You know best tasting wine, and so Jesus was giving them a bunch of alcohol when they had already been drinking. There would obviously be some who would have gotten drunk, and then Jesus would have been responsible for people getting drunk and I want to tell you that didn 't happen that didn 't happen because in this interesting quote by gk chesterton that wrote never take down a fence until you know the reason it was put up it's good advice it was good it's good advice we um carol and i went for a walk this last yet uh it was yesterday and we walked by this place and uh, it looked like it was, oh, a beautiful yard, and just, it was just nice. We were walking by, and all of a sudden, these two um, bulldogs come running out, big ones. And, uh, you know, they were fine, but they, they had waggy tails at, at first. But it was like, I'm glad the fence was there. Don't, put, don't tear down the fence. See, he, in other words, before you make any major changes, make sure you have thoroughly thought through the implications and um, and what I'm seeing today that has been grieving my heart, first of all, is I've seen a lot of fallen pastors that at the core of what happened in their life was alcohol. And they have, it has cost them, in some cases, their marriage, their family, in some cases, they you know, in most, in all of these cases, their ministry. And I've seen others get in tremendous pr- problems as a result. And while that is all happening, I'm hearing of pastors stand up in the pulpit and brag about the new wine, their new favorite drink, alcoholic drink that they have to the congregation without any concern about what that what the implications of that could be. And most of the people in this room and watching have been affected by alcohol in a negative way one way or another, most of us. We know family members, we have friends. We've seen the result of alcohol and its abuse and misuse. In fact, I can never think of a positive thing about alcohol. Celebrate recovery in the AA; they, they wouldn't exist. And yet, we we have jumped from—I would say—jumped from, you know, a theology that permeated the church about abstinence enough that we were able to get a nation to add an amendment to the constitution. Of course it was returned and I'm not making a political view on that, whether that was good or not anyhow, that's not the issue. But to think of that to a church now that's having parties. I have a, I have a pastor friend who was removed from his church by leadership of the denomination. Sadly, I say our denomination. And, and I will tell you ahead of time that the people who did that are no longer part of our denomination. But I do wanna give the story because a, a brokenhearted pastor I talked to and what had happened was he started a church and the church was slow growing, smart guy, computer programmer, In Silicon Valley, that's where it was, a tough place to start a church. It started to grow. It was going slow. The leader came to him and says, Your church is not growing fast enough. What we suggest to you is that you go to the bars, drink along with the the you know, people there, get to know them, witness to them, and get them into your church so that your church can grow. I'm he- hearing this and I'm just like blown away, no way. It's exactly what happened. The guy says, if I did that, I'd lose my marriage in three to five weeks. He came out of how he, when he came to Jesus, he was a complete drug addict, an alcoholic. And in the ignorance of this, and there was an argument and eventually he was asked, to, he, says, he said, you'll do better in a different group than us. Gladly, those people who said that, they're in a different group. But now, but how do we get there? How do we get when some of the most famous preachers today are standing up in front of their congregation and telling the people about their new favorite drink? How do we come from there to there? And I think it was bad theology because, well, there's a problem. Now, it's interesting, when it comes to this subject, people are passionate about it. There are people, when you even talk about this subject, on one side or the other, they're passionate about it. There are people who have been abused horribly because of alcohol, and they have been delivered from it, and they're passionate about it. There are others who claim, well, you know, I have my freedom, and they are passionate about it. In fact, when you talk about it in this way, oftentimes you'll have people get kind of angry, and I wonder why. Because if you get angry about it. If, if I talk to you today about the um, about the physical dangers of drinking too much soda, somebody would go, "Well, Rick, that's none of your business," but. Others of you might, um, very few are going to get really mad, right? You're just, you're just being judgmental. You're just trying to, you know. But when it comes to this thing about alcohol, you can lose fellowship. But I'm going to give it to you anyhow because I'm responsible, and as a lead pastor of this church, I think it's my responsibility to at least give you the whole counsel of God in this. Okay? So here we go. The first thing I want to say is this. Scripture always condemns drunkenness. Always. Always. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It, this is... This, this is... Uh, An interesting contrast between being filled with the Spirit and being drunk. And so you can't be drunk and filled with the Spirit at the same time. And drunkenness is a sin. It's not, it's a sin. 1 Peter 4.3 says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, Waveries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I mean, he says there has been enough, right? Because of that, it's it's, the, it's a, this condemnation of drunkenness that is throughout the Scripture. And I don't, I'm not going to go through more. I don't need to go through all of them. But you know, like First Corinthians five eleven, First Corinthians six nine, we can go on and on and on about. The condemnation of drunkenness. I want to ask this question to su- to those of you that at some point recently, maybe you drank too much, and I I don't mean staggering, you know, in the gutter drunk, but you are you drank and you drank enough that. You had, there's a question whether you were drunk or not. Or maybe you were. And then I want to ask this question. Did you ask God to forgive you? Did you ask him? Because what you did was sin. It's not a question in the scripture. Nobody argues that. Those who argue for drinking do not argue that getting drunk is not a sin. This, the second thing is, and by the way, can I say this? Jesus died for addicts and drunkards. Okay. He absolutely loves drunkards. That's who he died for. The second thing is there are restrictions from drinking wine for kings and priests. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 31, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all of the oppressed of their rights leaders are not to drink. Also in Leviticus, it says, you and your sons are not to drink wine or fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to, to come. God is saying to the priest, don't you have any any, no drink, no alcohol on you. <clears throat> and so... There's two uh, things that we need to be aware of. The third one is this. Is, when the Bible talks about wine, is it talking about the same thing we talk about? And the answer to that is no. No. That biblical wine is different than what you get at Costco. I'm going to say that. Now, there are some similarities, and we'll talk about that, but the the problem is the, the language. The biblical language that we translate into wine has variety to it. In fact, it would be a lot easier, a lot clearer if we just translated the fruit of the vine. But it doesn't translate straight over. It does in some cases when Jesus said, I'll, I'll not drink henceforth the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you again in the, my Father's kingdom. But it would help if we had that. But we don't because we have a language that, um, that describes something that is different than it was when, in Jesus' day. And I want to say it in this way. Um, when you have something and you've said, okay, wine, where does your mind go? Your mind, does it go to near beer or something like that? You know, a kind of wine that doesn't have alcohol? But, or when you say wine, does it go to alcohol? that 's where it goes, right if somebody 's having wine you're, 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 you are assuming they have they 're t- having alcohol, okay The wine in the bible let 's put it this one when you go to Costco, you know Costco is a, i think it 's the, the highest producer or, or uh, they sell more alcohol than any other, uh, anything else, anywhere else in the United States, and so you go to Costco and they have a whole section of wine right. <laughs> If you went to Costco in Jesus' day, you would have a small section of wine that would be fermented wine. They had fermented wine. But th- that fermented wine that you had would be, less al- be have less alcohol than any of the wine you get at Costco. One, the fermenting process is one. The, the The wine that they could make in jesus' time the highest amount of alcohol content was about eleven percent from five to eleven percent okay so um, then what you would have is you'd have a large section of what was um, considered mixed drink, and the majority of that at this First century Costco would have been uh, would have been uh, alcoholic wine mixed with water. the The content and I I I'm not don't have time to go into all the depth of this, but the content of that wine would have been between eight parts water and one part wine to twenty parts water and one part wine. That would be the largest section at Costco when you went there. That, that, um, that most of the wine was diluted by water. And there's a lot of reasons for that. For one, cost factor. It was very expensive. For two, because wine was local. And so you didn't import wine from all over the world. You got it from your local community and whatever was grown there. Then the third, which is also a large, maybe the largest section of the wine, would be in these, um, the the, the wine would be in in these containers, like leather containers, and it would look like jelly. Sometimes it would even be thicker than jelly. It would be kind of a goo in wine. And what that was, was one of the ways in which they, were able to keep wine, was they would boil it. Now, sometimes they would boil it while it was still what we call grape juice, right? And they would boil it so it would have no alcohol. It would, it would take out all the water, and it, would, and, and it would just dry so that they could take it with them. They could carry it. And then they would take, and what they'd do is they mix it with water, and then they would drink it. They'd take some of it, mix it with the water, and drink it, and they'd have flavored juice. And the majority of it was that. That's what people carried in those containers. And uh, then sometimes they would actually mix um, alcoholic wine and boil it, do the same thing, And that, then, the boiling process itself would diminish the alcohol content in that jelly very significantly. Now, we have writings, which, it went longer than I I wanted to. I'm going to post some of this so you guys can, can look up more detail and give you some books to read. But we have first century writings, a lot of them, that the culture of the day... Non-Jewish culture as well as Jewish culture. I'm talking about this was the culture of the world, Rome, the Roman world, the Grecian world, that thought if a person drank wine that was mixed half and half, that that was crazy. Who would drink wine mixed half and half? That is so crazy that they would drink that, that kind of, it's too strong that if you wanted good wine, it was always eight to one minimum. What I'm saying to you is this, that we use this terminology, wine, and our mind goes immediately to alcoholic wine because that's what we know. Hard liquor that we produce, was they were incapable of producing it in the first century. It wasn't until almost a thousand years later that they started producing Bec- they learned the process of being able to uh, heighten the alcoholic content in the way that they have, and so we have hard liquor. so did anybody ever get drunk? Of course, people got drunk, and people could take alcohol you know in in, uh, un, in, in unfiltered or or um, wine, or wine that didn't have water added to it, they could take it and they could drink that. And the Bible condemned it and does condemn it. Now, there was another place you could find alcohol in your first-century Costco, and that was at the pharmacy. And if you went to the pharmacy, you could get uh, you could get wine, some with alcoholic content and some without at the pharmacy because in the first century there weren't a lot of medications and the Bible, this is why if you understand, if you look at this in context, what you find is this, the Bible condemns and condemns drinking and hard drinking and, 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 and strong drink and all of this and then turns around and says, but there's some good things about it. Like if you're broken hearted and, and somebody, listen, you see somebody who has lost a loved one and they're in, in despair. There's some medicine for them. And it's seen as medicine. As Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities. And th- this is not wine to get drunk. This is a mixture of wine and water for the purposes of, of settling a stomach problem because he couldn't go to the local pharmacy and get medication for it, you see? And if you, if you see how that all combines, you see, scriptures that are taken, there's a scripture that actually says you know, that, that, um, that wine makes the heart glad. And that's, that's sometimes quoted, but they don't quote the other part because what it does is saying that the Lord allows for this fruit to grow and this, this you know this, uh, f- for, for the, the grass to grow and all the good things that God allows to grow and the wine, and he says, and it makes the heart glad. And if you look at it in context, what you're seeing is, is that really alcohol? Like I said, we, we go to alcohol with this wine thing. But it's really, if it's the fruit of the vine. I sat down this morning and I had my coffee. And it made my heart glad. I had, my heart was glad with that cup of coffee. See, it, we, we, only because we think in this, you know, in, in our, our culture, and it's, it's so different in the first century culture. Jesus would have never helped someone get drunk, ever, ever. And so when he made the fruit of the vine, he turned that water into the fruit of the vine. I don't know if there's any alcoholic content in there, but I know the alcohol of the day, was about two, 2.25% alcohol in the alcohol of the day, the way that it was mixed. Not even considered alcohol in our, uh, in, in our culture. But he made something that was, I don't think he gave them hard drink. And any alcoholic drink that we have today, if you drink any of the wine at Costco, you're drinking what was considered in that day that that was hard liquor. That it's it's a higher alcoholic content. It was it's called the Bible calls it strong drink. And it is a mocker if you drink it. That's just the context, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) I'm going to close with just this, and I've gone over time, but I want to close. The Jesus who turned water into wine and provided for a man who himself was in trouble because he had bad planning, (laughs) didn't go over to the guy and say, man, you really messed up. He quietly did a miracle that that man didn't even know. I wonder how many times Jesus has done a miracle for me and I had no idea it was done maybe you can think the same possibility how many times has jesus done a miracle for us and we weren't aware of it but he just did it because he's jesus i can worship that jesus how about you would you like to do that let's do that worship team come on up
1: The world, but it couldn't fill me. And man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along. You put me back together. Now every desire is now satisfied here is- They'll call me friend Cause 'Cause the the God of the mountain It's the God of the valley And there's not a place Your mercy and grace Won't find me again Oh, there's not Better than you, oh there's nothing Better than you, oh there's nothing oh, Nothing is better You turn foes into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only